on the off chance of $1,000 saving on the regular ticket price to Mumbrella 360 wasn't enough reason for you to lock in your seats early. Here's two more. Hawaiian Airlines CMO Avi Manis and DMG Media boss Sean Walsh are confirmed to speak at the conference. Tickets booked before 3rd of March will save $1,000. Get in there now, mumbrella360.com.au. has launched huge in Australia less than a year after he said there wouldn't be a local presence. A look at Seven's performance in the second half of 2022 as earnings season hits full steam and Telstra's first big work under Brent Smart are the news topics in today's Umbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jaspin and joining me to discuss all of that is Editorial Director Damien Francis. Hey Damo. Cal, thank you for having me back. And Editor Olivia Crimmel. Hey again Liv. Hello. How are you both today? We're all in different locations, so this is this is fun, just like old times once again. Just like COVID, the best of COVID. I forgot <laughs> to put on my joke about you being the Melbourne Bureau Chief. Sorry. Well, you've got it in there. It's, it, it, look, for me, it makes me feel, it's a bit of a leveller, I'll put it that way, when we're all in different locations, because I, I can tend to feel a little bit left out when I'm down here in my living room and you're all having fun in the studio. Uh, later on, we'll then be joined by MNC Saatchi Group's ANZ CEO, Justin Graham, where he's going to talk about what's changing at the group with his expansion to a new global role. Whether or not it's going to stay independent after a couple of takeover attempts in 2022, and what's happening locally with Bohemia as it relaunches to market. But first, the news. Let's start with something fresh, that being Matt Baxter opening up an Australian office for IPG's design and innovation agency, Huge, which he joined in 2021. I should say there, it's not a physical office, but it's a local presence. It's going to be headed up by Ben Skelsey, another Aussie returning home. Ben's recently been leading Huge in Singapore and has held a couple of other senior roles previously in London, one of those being managing partner at Ogilvy. Demo, a bit of a backflip here from Matt in terms of launching in Australia. What do you make of this, especially with that more hybrid offering and a, and a lack of physical offices around the globe? Yeah, look, Matt's never been one to mince his words, and I fully believe that when he says something at the time, he believes in it. Uh, I think we've got a bit of a clip from your Mumbrella cast uh, last year, Cal, with Matt. I think it was in June where he said this. You know, we're doing work already in a number of markets around the world where offices don't exist. And so, you know, in that respect, yes, you know, Australia is a viable and active market for us. Are we going to establish a physical office with physical footprint in Australia? No, not, not in the foreseeable future. We don't feel we need to. So obviously that was a fairly robust denial that they were going to be opening a local presence. Like you said, office not so much. It is a local presence more than anything else. But look, it's a it's a really interesting thing to be doing at the moment, particularly with the market challenges ahead and the fact that huge in Australia isn't necessarily well known, perhaps. The most we know about is the fact that Matt Baxter, who is huge in Australia, is over in the US uh, leading it. 
that wasn't uh, an intentional pun. Apologies for that. Cal's shaking his head at me already. Uh, but realistically speaking, I think a, a lot of the listeners to the Umbrella cast will probably be scratching their heads just a little bit on exactly what Huge's offering is, how it differentiates itself in market, what it intends uh, to achieve in the local market as well. Uh, look, essentially, it, it on its website, the terms itself is a creative growth acceleration company that uh, is excellent at experience, transformation, uh, technology realization, and growth creation. So make of that uh, what you will. Obviously, Matt's got a huge presence uh, in Australia despite being in the US, but Ben, a little bit different. Like you said, uh, Cal, Singapore most recently within Huge, uh, but before that, uh, a long time spent in London and Ogilvy. Uh, so I think a, an interesting call, particularly in the environment with an interesting person uh, to be leading it. Yeah, definitely. And uh, we are seeing a bit more of an emergence of these sort of types of innovation and creative design companies. Obviously, we had uh, Ajaz Ahmed last week talking about AKQA, his company and its local presence here. And then um, seems like what you would you would think or what we're hearing is that Justin Hines' new agency will be following a semi-similar path uh, and, of course, Media Monks as well playing in that same space. But, Liv, speaking about creativity, a lot's been made about IPG's seemingly shrinking creative operations in Australia here, selling off 303, Mullen Lowe and McCann in the past few years. What do you think this says about the plans here and I, I guess how well-placed Skelsey is to, to launch into market? One final point being that this obviously comes just after Pippa Berlocker was announced to be returning to Australia from Singapore last week too, where you have spent some time. Yes, I have uh, a lovely five years on the little red dot. I, it is interesting. I, I was reading um, shortly after your story about Huge coming to the market. I was reading up a bit more about it because obviously it is a new brand in market. And uh, it seems like uh, Matt's had a bit of a rough six months. They've had to lay off quite a few staff uh, across their other markets. So it is interesting that they've decided that opening in Australia right now is, is a good idea. Um, having said that, APAC is still a growth market for IPG globally. So maybe that's why they've decided that if other markets are slowing down, now is a good time to launch in Australia. And to your point, you know, they've had a few of their other brands um, exit the portfolio in recent years. So now is perhaps, you know, they've got the the capacity and the space and the capital to to invest in, in those new um brands from their portfolio globally. We spoke about it on the podcast last year, and I, I would recommend if you want to hear a little bit more about it in, in Matt's own words, going back and listening to that. We'll put it in the link of the episode description. Um, Matt's, Matt sunsetted uh, the majority of Huge's offices uh, last year, which was sort of made, made waves across the industry and sort of an extreme solution to hybrid working Maybe that's the cause of some of those uh, some of those cuts live that you mentioned there. Damo, what do, what do you think about that move in, in terms of, you know, I think, Matt, the term he used was he, they're going to keep the Brooklyn head office as an experience centre, but otherwise there is no need for those physical offices. And it looks like that will probably be the same as what's happening locally here. Look, I think if uh, COVID did anything, and we've talked about this, not just in our industry, but many industries, uh, it completely redefined the way that we work and, and how we work. I think in the case of Huge at the time, it 
probably looked like a, a really good bet. And I'm certainly not saying now it, it, it's not a good bet. It means they can be far more agile in where they open up new business opportunities. And, and with the example here, look, we're talking about them opening up shop in a nervous market, a market that could at some stage this year go into recession. We are potentially looking at more interest rate hikes, uh, nervous consumers, and as a result, nervous brands. Uh, so on one side, you say, well, that's probably not the ideal environment to launch a new agency in. But on the other side, if the cost to get that going is relatively minimal, on the in the grand scheme of things, the risk involved here is seemingly on a relatively minimal level, then why not give it a shot? When is a, a good time? Some would argue that in a down market is the best time to to launch a new business. So, you know, this could be a, a bit of a blinder played by Matt. He, he's played a few blinders in, in his past, as, as everyone uh, well knows in this industry. You would argue that he's made a safe bet in the person leading it here, being that they've got history with huge and if we consider ourselves to be as deeply integrated into APAC as, as we do generally in this industry, then, you know, coming from Singapore, it's only a hop, skip and a jump over to Sydney in an eight hour flight. But um, there's no ideal time. So this could be a, a good uh, a good situation for them. I, I think the bigger issue, though, is actually going to be recruiting because if anything we've heard in the last few months is that the talent market here is still really tight. So coming out with a new brand in market, it's not only clients you've got to get over the line, it's also talent. So that 100%. will be the other challenge that they'll have to face in terms of getting this up and running. And look, as you said, Matt, it's got such a still a brand name in this market. Gosh, I remember interviewing him back in his naked communications days. Um, so I'm sure he won't have any issue. It's just about how much he can commit to the market in terms of getting it up and running himself when he's got obviously quite a lot of other responsibility um, with his global role. Yeah, 100%. And it's not surprising that we've seen a lot of these big roles being filled by people coming in from from global markets, as you pointed out before, Liv. But uh, open invitation to Matt, if he ever wants to come back to the Mumbrella 360 stage with another bucket of uh, tomatoes to have thrown at him, he's more than welcome. I'm sure Cal would probably lob a couple in there. <laughs> I would never do that to Matt. Next up, breaking down Seven West Media's results and Telstra flexing its security credentials. Yesterday morning, Seven West Media dropped its first half year earnings for the 22-23 financial year, revealing revenue dips that the media conglomerate had attributed to a weaker advertising market across Total TV. Despite drops across net profit, group revenue and EBITDA, which was down 4.8% year on year for $205 million, the group reported a 39.3% share of total TV revenue and a 37% share of catch-up free-to-air streaming. Before we chat amongst ourselves, we have a short interview here from an analyst to break down Seven's performance following its results. Senior Equity Analyst at Wilson Asset Management, Sean Wyke. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Great to, uh, great to be here. So Seven West Media delivered its H2 results yesterday for 2022. Overall performance, Sean, what, what, was, your, um, what was your take on that? Was it in line with expectations? 
Yeah, so the, the first half 23 result was broadly in line with um, consensus earnings expectations, although I'd note there was, you know, about eight and a half, nine million dollars of costs that they'd taken, um, you know, I guess below the line relating to the implementation of their Code 7 project, which is probably another interesting topic as well. I mean, looking at it compositionally, broadcast revenue declined about 1%, which was a good result considering that they were cycling the Olympics in the PCP. But they also did have the benefit of a full half of, of contribution from the prime acquisition. What did you uh, make of the decision to stop reporting the Metro advertising market? Is that is that relevant at all? Does it mean anything? Or can you take anything from that? Yeah, I mean, I think they, I think it was the outlook commentary where they were able to give us, I guess, a, a better sense of sort of how they see themselves tracking and, and where the market's going. And yeah, clearly that was more subdued. I mean. They'd flagged that trading conditions had been pretty weak throughout um, January and February. And, you know, the advertising market's just so short at the moment that, you know, there's no real visibility into March, even at this stage at the moment. So, you know, they were talking to the TV market declining about 5 to 9% um, year over year in the second half. And that, but, you know, obviously management would expect to be able to grow share against that. I guess the positive on the outlook was that they are responding to the market conditions with 15 to 20 million of cost out being flagged, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously on top of the six million savings that they were that they're generating from um, the Martin Place studio. So yeah, to me, it sort of felt as though that there was enough in there to give you a feel that you know the the, the outlooks you know clearly sort of softening, and you know from here the earnings risk to me does feel skewed to the downside in the short term. And we've seen some pretty significant investment from Seven West Media in the last six months or so, uh, that being with uh, investments in Car Expert, uh, a new deal for the AFL, the cricket, and also NBC Universal. What do you think about these overall? Is management making the right decisions in, in regards to investments? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, as a high-level statement, I mean, content's obviously king, um, for, you know, <laughs> for for Seven, and you know, clearly, I think that's the most critical aspect is to ensure that they, you know, continue to generate good content to attract eyeballs. You know, they've made an indication that the dividend won't resume until FY twenty-five. So, I guess to me, the uh, the read through there was that you know the down cycle in in the linear advertising market could persist potentially for twelve months and. You know, the balance sheet does carry a reasonable level of gearing. It's got about 200 million of net debt sitting on the balance sheet, which is about 0.8, 0.9 times EBITDA. So, yeah, I think a measured approach to investment certainly warranted at the moment. But yeah, clearly the market's not going to want to see that gearing elevate too much more, given where we are from a cyclical point of view. Yeah, and obviously we've we've seen uh, rumours of it for quite a while, but there was a report this week about a um, touted merger with HT&E. Um, does that make sense from from your point of view? Does Seven have the balance sheet to make it happen, and, and what would that look like if that were to go ahead? Yeah, I mean, I think further consolidation in the Australian media sector is inevitable. Um, you know, the local players need to look to do what they can to compete against the global giants like Google and, and Meta and Amazon and Netflix, you know, really to, to maintain advertising dollars. So I guess the key attraction of any merger, I think, would be around cost synergies through the removal of the duplicated costs and I guess streamlining operations. Like if you think back to sort of 2018 when Nine and Fairfax merged as an example, I mean, they're able to take out sort of over $65 million in costs um, and that equated to about a 10 to 15% uplift in earnings of the merged business. So the idea of, of a tie-up makes plenty of strategic and financial um, you know, sense in, in my view. But 
I guess it does face a number of hurdles. You know, you've got Kerry Stokes with effective control of sort of 39% of seven. And, you know, I think he's unlikely to entertain any capital raising to undertake M&A. Um, and, you know, the, the, clearly, you know, his focus would be the restarting of dividends so he can get some capital back out of his investments. So, you know, you also add in the other angle from HT1's perspective. I mean, News Corp owned 13% of that business. So, yeah, to me, it does feel as though there are a number of hurdles that sort of would need to be crossed in order for the deal to get across the line. But, yeah, strategically, it, it, it does make sense. And and just finally, Sean, um, was it the right decision for Seven to ditch the Olympics, um, leaving it for its competitor at nine? I think based on what we've seen in terms of, you know, the returns that they're able to generate from that investment in the Olympics, then, yeah, I think it was the, the right outcome. You know, it's obviously highly variable and depend on the timing of the Olympics as to how successful the advertising is. But I think, you know, as we roll forward, yeah, that, that does look like a positive. And, you know, particularly with, you know, the issues they've had around the Cricket Australia rights and stuff as, as well, I think it, it is the right move. Sean, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for your time. I appreciate it. So, Liv, the most interesting part here, and we, we spoke about it just at the end with Sean there, is the rumoured merger between Seven and HTE. Sean said there is further consolidation in the market, which is inevitable uh, in order for the local media players to keep competing with the internationals. He also said it makes plenty of sense strategically and financially in his view. How is the industry seeing this, do you think? And what, what do you think a merger between Seven West Media and HTE could look like in reality? Well, in reality, it, it would look like consolidation, it, you know, further consolidation. And uh, as was already made reference to that, we're going to see more of that as there are fewer ad dollars going around. It makes sense that there'll be um, companies looking for cost efficiencies uh, in order to make the most of those ad dollars. So I, it is not surprising at all to hear that. And I think, yeah, the industry is, is preparing for it. We've already seen this year a few deals and look, it's, you know, the, the Fox News, for instance, it didn't happen in the end, but that's not to say that there wasn't a lot of interest in it and that there wasn't, you know, a financial reason for it. It's just at the end of the day, the um, two businesses didn't quite align in terms of their expectations and the um, financials. Warburton's had a, you know, strong appetite for M&A and if you look at obviously with Prime, that that took a while to get off the ground. So it wouldn't surprise me if this is, you know, almost like laying the groundwork. Whether or not it eventuates between those two companies in particular, we'll have to wait and see. But I definitely expect to see more M&A this year, uh, particularly as, yeah, the market, whether it's because of the interest rates and the overall economy or whether it's because of other factors, um, the market is tightening. And as a result of that, companies will be looking for, uh, cost efficiencies and the best way to do that is through M&A. Damo, you kicked off our uh, our new weekend mumbo talking about the conditions shaping up for M&A this year. Um, th- looking back, this is not quite, at the, would, well, it wouldn't be quite at the scale of Nine and Fairfax's merger, which created a multi-billion dollar company. This would tick Seven and ht whatever they were going to call itself, just over the one billion dollar uh, mark. Damo, what kind of opportunities do you think this could really open up for the pair? 
Look, I think uh, what Olivia said was, you know, bang on pretty much. But also when you, when you look at it, you look at the upfronts that Nine does now and they can touch so many different areas, uh, you know, across uh, publishing, across radio, across TV, BVOD, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. Obviously for marketers, for media buyers, that's an extraordinarily compelling proposition uh, to go to the one-stop shop. Uh, so a merger between Seven West Media, HTNE could provide uh, something of a, a, a similar nature. Like you say, not not quite the same size, not far off. Let's be honest about it. Uh, interesting in that, of course, with these two entities, you, you've got two very well respected leaders in, in James Warburton and, and Kieran Davis as well. So it would be in the case of a, a tie up here, a merger, acquisition, whatever could uh, eventuate it would be fascinating to see what happens uh, to, to to both of them obviously there, there will be one making the move which it sounds like could be seven west media and and then what happens uh, to, to kieran but you know those are all questions that are a fair way ahead of us i would suggest i think it's probably wise to realistically just go back a, a little bit and I guess acknowledge where Seven West Media has has come from because it wasn't so long ago, uh, early twenty twenty, in fact, where you know we were talking about the the six hundred and eighty three million dollars of debt that Seven had, and the fact that it was looking down the barrel at potentially going into administration. Uh, you know, only a few years down the track, we're certainly a, a long, long way from from that fairly dire situation. So it's fascinating to have seen how relatively quickly those tables have turned for the media company. Yeah, and but just to counter that, there's probably a lot of shareholders sitting there wondering when they're going to get a dividend. And yes, it's great that they're, you know, um, putting down their debt. Obviously, that's all financially the right thing to do. I don't think there's many economists who would argue against that. But also if you're a shareholder, you're looking at the share price, you're looking at no dividend for what, like the 11th? 11th straight <laughs> reporting period. Absolutely. Yeah, so, Absolutely. So although it is it is in a better financial situation, uh, there is still a bit of questions um, surrounding its its management and its investments and and also just the operational costs, et cetera, particularly given that from an advertising dollar perspective, the market is getting tighter. Yeah, 100%. But I mean, look, think of it this way, though. When you dig a bloody great big hole like the business did, you've got to put a really, really long ladder down it and it takes a while to climb back out. So, you know, look, we've covered off uh, analysts' um, thoughts on uh, the performance of, of SWM, which I think realistically has been relatively positive in terms of how uh, the business has handled the the environment and their their headwinds. Uh, if I were an investor, and I'm not, so don't have to declare anything there. That's but, very uh, clear. That's very yeah. <laughs> um, I would be suggesting that uh, it won't be long, but I get it. Eleven straight is um is challenging. Yeah, because ultimately, why do people invest in companies on the on the share market like Seven? It's because you know they want a return on that investment. They just want so. to see Seven doing well. Live, that's it. Show me the money. <laughs> they just want some great content. 
let's get on to our last topic. One of the bigger talent moves in 2022 was Brent Smart swapping out IAG for Telstra, joining as Telstra's new CMO. Uh, on Monday, the brand launched its first brand campaign with Smart at the helm with a bit of a cheeky dig at its competitor Optus, which faced a cyber attack in late 2022, resulting in 11 million customers' data being accessed. It's normally number two taking a dig at number one, but not in this case. Demo, what do you make of Smart's first outing, um, the decision to go down the cyber route with a new brand ad? Is that a smart move, if, if I can oh. be excused in saying that? <laughs> oh, no, you can't. No, no, you can't. Only I'm allowed to do those. But also, really, was it was it a cheeky dig? I'm going to play devil's advocate. I don't know if it was. Let's Let's be realistic about this. Yeah, security, online security is a seriously big issue uh, at the moment. So there was a report out recently on the ABC that said between January and September 2022, Aussies lost $424.8 million to scammers, which was a 90% increase year on year. That is huge. So this issue is big. So if you're Telstra, why wouldn't you go all in on security promoting the, the, the brand? In terms of the the campaign, you know, it's interesting. It goes out of the the sort of previous style of, of Telstra. It has a very simple message. I think that's the, the the crux of it. You know, you can't be more obvious about the fact you're talking about security than have a whole bunch of black vehicles and helicopters following. Uh, I think it was like a really old Toyota Avensis or something like that. But you know, the point the point is, it was a really obvious play at the point and i'm not sure that it was necessarily a massive dig at, at, at optus intentionally anyway um but nice to see them doing something a bit different well you've totally stitched me up there demo but uh <laughs> <laughs> no one held a gun to your head and said that you had to say it was some sort of big challenge to optus i'm I'm going to also play devil's advocate and say that I don't think it does scream security and safety on, you know, particularly mobile devices because you don't see a mobile device until like the very end of the ad. I spent the first, you know, parts of the ad trying to work out if this is an insurance ad, if it's, you know, it could have been for any number of things and it did have a very blokey feel about it. It feels like boys and their toys basically, like he just wanted an excuse to get lots of helicopters and tanks and motorbikes <laughs> into an ad you know, it feels a bit like tomorrow when the war began, you know, like Stuart Beatty all over again. So I'm, I'm not sure that it does actually scream what Telstra is trying to convey. I've seen other uh, ads that do it better, I think. And it, yeah, to me, it just came across as a bit too, too clever for its own good in that, you know, the, the product and the brand was not until the very end. And by that point, you're a bit confused and you're like lost interest. So interesting strategy. We'll have to see how it goes in terms of delivering the results for Telstra that it's looking for. Yeah, well, you've obviously got the same agency that Smart worked with for the majority of his time at IAG, that being the monkeys. Maybe live, as you say there, Brent's uh, using the opportunity with a, a bit more money to play with for his, for his first campaign, going big on that one. Or maybe Telstra are expanding into private security services. Um, <laughs> well, it, um, well. <laughs> it almost screamed a little bit of that, that film... Um, What's the one? Is it Extraction with uh, with, with Chris Hemsworth? Is it with Chris Hemsworth? Yeah, yeah that's, that was sort of when I first saw it. I'm like, is this a preview for a new film? Like, what's <laughs> going on? 
to be fair though, I think what what we know, what we know for sure is that with Brent at Telstra, as long as Telstra plays ball, we will see some very different campaigns than what we've known Telstra for in the past. That is without doubt. Uh, and maybe they can take on board your notes down there and be more obvious about what they're trying to get at. But <laughs> I thought it was good. I liked it. Coming up next, MNC Sachi's Justin Graham talks us through his new global gig. Justin Graham, CEO of MNC Saatchi Group and also recently appointed Global Head of Advertising Network at MNC Saatchi Group. Welcome to the podcast once again. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you were just uh, in London last week for um, the event. Was it Capital Markets Day, I believe, uh, to to kind of uh, also mark your new appointment? Um, can you talk us through initially what this role exactly means, why it was identified as a role that needed to be creative and what exactly you'll be doing. Yeah, sure. Just just that. Um, <laughs> so let me let me jump into it. I think there's, um, yeah, it was great to be over in London last week. And uh, as we were just talking about off air, I think there's, you know, there's some real challenges around the world. And, and part of this role is around um, driving simplicity within our network as well and looking at where the opportunities are going to be for growth in Australia but also globally in the next few years. And, look, it's no surprise that MNC Saatchi is a famous name around advertising and certainly that Saatchi name is arguably one of the more famous names in advertising. And this is a new role. It's an opportunity to go and have a look at uh, our creative product globally, uh, to look at our, our talent management globally to look at uh, the clients that we're working with and how we're serving them better, um, whether it be within individual markets or cross-border as well, and, and look at it with a new perspective and around treating uh, what we consider to be our advertising division within our network as a real specialism and one that is that's rapidly evolving at the moment. Now, that won't be any new news to, to your listeners as well, um, that last statement, but uh, it's a real opportunity to probably get some more consistency around how we're evolving as a network as well within within that specialism. So, I mean, you mentioned there the, the recognisable Saatchi name. To, to most onlookers, they would, they would see that name and they would probably associate it to advertising in particular. Um, what, what, I guess, about that specifies on, on advertising? Does that maybe suggest that the, the group is maybe focusing on other avenues and diversifying a bit more as well? Yeah, the group's been on, on a tremendous growth trajectory, uh, certainly over the last four or five years, largely built off the back of uh, high margin and high growth specialisms. So uh, as it stands today, the advertising specialism contributes around 50% uh, of the revenue uh, within the group, but only about 20% of the profit. And it has the most number of people in terms of headcount as well. So you start to look at that and see there's a tremendous opportunity there to be able to grow that. Now, our our high growth specialisms, uh, global and, and, and social issues, um, uh, passion marketing, performance media, and our consulting division, which wraps up a lot of our design experience, consulting capability, have all had tremendous growth. Uh, now, the advertising offer in a lot of those markets, in many cases, still represents the front door into those specialisms. But there's definitely uh, a, an opportunity. We've set ourselves this challenge, which is around, as I said, coming off a strong base, but increasing our our, our creative ambition and getting recognition for that, uh, looking at how we work with the most ambitious brands globally, 
uh, and how we can better connect. I think the, the really interesting part of that Saatchi name and why it's so famous is that it's associated with brilliant work and very entrepreneurial cultures. And the history of MC Saatchi has been very much a DNA of founders, owners, setting up businesses all over the world and coming together, probably tied together by that DNA, uh, less so by global clients like some of the whole co's are. And so the job for me and for, for the team overall is how do we go and embrace that entrepreneurial DNA that we've got uh, in those different markets, recognize that some unique skill sets in some of those different areas and use technology and use relationships to, to start to bring that together. And I, I said this last week as well, again, it's a cliche, but how does one plus one equal three? You know, how do we actually, if we've got these capabilities in different areas, how can we bring that together to drive growth and to, to drive that creative ambition? And then locally, you know, we were also talking about this briefly uh, off air. You've got that leadership team, a recently a promoted CEO, MC Saatchi, uh, recently arrived, Paul Hutchison at Bohemia. How will you continue to do your role locally and, and how will that change now? Yeah, so less time, uh, but more focused uh, around that time. So there's an incredible lineup of leaders uh, that run the different capabilities within Australia with Mick and, and Hutch, as you said, Pat and, and Christina, and then uh, Emily from a strategy perspective and, and Cam from a creative perspective. So, you know, the Exco team is is set in Australia and, uh, and is working together really well. We've started the year well. There's some good trajectory around our growth. There's some good work across the board as well. And so I'll continue to play that role um, with about half my time. And so we'll see how that how that plays out um, with half my time focused on this new uh, network role as well, which uh, again is only possible because of the hybrid world that we live in now. I think it would have been very challenging actually to do this pre-COVID where our centres of excellence sit in some of the larger markets around the world, but definitely I've been given the opportunity to go and do that and it's going to be a good case of time management, Cal. (laughs) Well, I was going to ask, how challenging are you sort of uh, expecting this to be? Because as I understand, you'll still be based in Australia, but you'll be splitting your time around half and half across um, here and uh, over in the UK market. There's a really good team around the world already. And there's also uh, in a couple of the key markets, there's an opportunity to bring in some new talent as well. So this year, I imagine there's a bit more uh, of an onus on on travel uh, to continue to build out that team. But as I said, there's a, there's a really good team in place already. And, um, and and with the opportunities that we have, we have people working for the Australian business all over the world as we speak. And so the idea of having someone that isn't in a traditional hub like London or New York leading a network, uh, I think is, is, you know, is really progressive. And also, you know, the Australian business is a large contributor uh, to MNC Saatchi globally. You know, we have sort of circa 400 people within the business mm-hmm. here and we've got 23, 2400 globally. So, you know, we're a, a significant player and, and there's certainly a number of people locally that play more global roles. So it, it sort of feels like uh, as an onlooker, 2023 is a little bit of a reset now for MNC Saatchi. We had a couple of, I don't know how you'd say, opportunistic takeover attempts last year. Is that sort of feeling a little bit more settled now? What's, what's the sort of feeling within the group? There's a real ambition across the group. Yeah, as, as you mentioned, there were two two takeover bids that were both unsuccessful that mm-hmm. occupied a lot of 2022, and that was coming off the back of a couple of years of COVID disruption as well. And 
and some some challenges as well as as we changed our board and and, and leadership team as well uh, over in the UK. So it just last week at this Capital Markets Day, the theme was moving forward, and that's very much around moving from a, a period of of transition and driving stability and from an investor point of view, confidence with the city in terms of where we're going and the strategy that we've got in place, having the right people in place. Uh, we see this era very much near around acceleration and uh, are very much looking forward or moving forward, as we said. Now, the challenge around all of that is that obviously we're not immune to some of the challenges that are happening around global economies in particular, whether we're dipping into recession or not, there's definitely some strong headwinds that are happening in Australia and all of the key markets. So it's about getting a smarter product and working forward and coming out of an era that we're pretty proud of the resilience that we've had as a network overall, the work that we've produced during that time. So we want to capitalize on that and, and move forward. And and then I guess from your point of view, you've I guess this new role marks a new era for you at MNC Saatchi. You've been with the group for quite some time now. What, what was that like from a more sort of personal point of view? The uncertainty of sorts last year. Was there ever a worry there for you? Any thoughts about maybe if it was the right situation or did that not really change anything? It was, it was definitely a real unifying experience. Uh, as I said, I had the opportunity to engage with the global executive team of which I sit as well as you know, partner with people locally as well. And, you know, we didn't dip into a crisis. Actually, we had our best year ever last year uh, globally and Australia was a big contributor to that. And I think we've, we've sort of forged the bonds of how we are a simpler organisation, a more focused organisation. And, you know, as you said, I think you wanted to say I'm old, but I've actually yeah, I've been here for, for nine years. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's certainly the longest um, opportunity I've had within a, a, an agency before. And now I feel... I feel really uh, uh, optimistic around what we can go and do going to 23. Last week, uh, we had the relaunch event with Hutch at Bohemia. Um, definitely a sort of new era of sorts for that media agency. Um, what's your sort of feeling about what Bohemia can can offer the market now in this new era? Also, you know, bringing in Hutch, as we also spoke about last year, pretty big name um, overseas and what he can bring to the group. Yeah, there's just so much change in media at the moment and it, it's really primed for a proposition like Bohemia to, uh, to I think, really prosper in this market as well. You know, Hutch has hit the ground running. There's been a couple of wins. There'll be a couple more that we'll announce uh, in the next week or so, which are very much uh, in an integrated uh, win, which is, which is exactly what we want to be doing. I think we've already blurred the lines between what a traditional advertising and design and media business looks like and we continue to do that every day it's actually very rare that we would show up certainly for new business opportunities where we wouldn't have connections planning and media thinking embedded in the other specialisms within the group so uh, that culminated in the the launch last week which uh, which I thought was fantastic actually and we also announced globally that we're going to be looking at what uh, a broader media offering looks like outside of Australia as well and and Hutch will play a role in that as well in terms of the experiences that come out of the Australian market and being a more connected uh, connected business here so you know I'm really excited about that there's obviously a lot of change happening locally and globally not just on the uh, on the owner side but on on the buying side as well so look I think it's a good time to be in that. Do you find um Potentially, just as a final point, in order to really kind of bring those things together, do you, do you feel like there's maybe a little bit of a disconnect with the, with the name? Would there ever be a consideration maybe to bring that name a little bit closer, something like 
MNC Bohemia or I don't know, just spitballing here. <laughs> we might we might have to start paying you. We throw you a few briefs, Cal. Uh, look, I think yeah, we look we we talk a lot about being easy to understand and easier to buy, and uh, so we're constantly looking at I guess our, our brand architecture as well to to look at that. But no, I think the the Bohemia brand and Hutch talked about this last week, uh, has a lot of cachet in this market. Uh, it's very well known. I think there's probably a sort of a groundswell of support behind it, wanting it to be a genuine independent that's disrupting the way we go about things. So yeah, there's certainly no plans to change that in the short term at all. Well, Justin, it's been great to see you again. And thanks again for joining me. Thanks, Cal. That's all we have time for today. Thanks again for listening to the Mumbrella cast. Please make sure to subscribe if you like what you're hearing and head to mumbrella.com.au to keep on top of Australia's media and marketing industry. Thanks again to Sean and Justin for joining us. And Liv, Damo, thank you once again. Pleasure, mate. See you next time.